Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello, and welcome to the Skeptics Bible Project. So today we're going to be continuing with our series on inerrancy, and we're going to get into what some of these specific types of errors are that we see in the Bible, and then we're going to talk mostly about the debates in the church that have arisen because of these errors, and then ultimately get into the fracturing of the church into different sects and denominations. So. Ben, I thought we would start with talking about some of the types of errors. Transmission errors, I thought we could talk a little bit about. A transmission error, to my mind, is simply as the Bible is being copied through the generations, because back in the ancient world, they didn't have copy machines or publishing houses or anything, and certainly no computers. The way they had to do it originally was just through oral transmission, so someone would tell the story and someone else would tell the story and someone else would tell the story. And um, that, you know, obviously leads to a certain amount of errors. And then once it was being transmitted through the written word, it also would lead to certain errors. And if you look at the manuscript tradition, um, we can see those errors in black and white. Yeah, I think it's... um. It's important to remember the production process that happens with these texts is completely different than the way that texts are produced today. These stories, like you said, started out as oral traditions. They were spread by people going from town to town. Um, Witnesses were uh, telling stories of what they saw or people were telling stories that they heard from witnesses or that they heard from people that claimed to be witnesses. And... um, if you think about comedians, when they tell a joke, it sort of floats around and it gets changed the way each person tells it. Um, right. You know, it, so obviously stories change and different things are emphasized and people add their own details. And so the stories start to be transformed that way. And then once they're written, like John said, a minor error that's made in one copy gets passed on to the next copy that's made from there and passed on to the next copy that's made from there and um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's disputed as to how important these transmission errors are. Certainly, we know about a lot of them because you can actually see the progression of the errors. Um, And then a lot of it, you can kind of deduce what the correct reading is. For instance, a lot of these errors are just grammar and spelling errors. Um, But there are some errors, and we're not going to, for transmission errors, we're not going to go into a lot of examples. But there are examples where... We're just not sure what the original reading is because of the transmission errors along the way. And then there are historical errors. Uh, A historical error, for instance, would be historical information that we now believe to be false. Uh, A good example of this is the whole Exodus story. The um, modern historians do not believe that uh, the Israelites were ever enslaved by the Egyptians um, the whole Exodus story never happened, and yet it's told as if it's factual history and believed as if it's factual history by Jews, Christians, um, etc. So we can point to lots of examples of historical errors. And then there's anachronisms, which is another sort of historical error. Uh, and anachronism is basically where there's something described as belonging to a period of time that it does not belong in. 
Uh, the example that I've always heard is it would be like if you told a story about Abraham Lincoln and you you said uh, Abraham Lincoln was using his laptop. Uh, well, that that's an anachronism because laptops didn't exist in the time of Lincoln. A good example of an anachronism in the Bible is um, camels. So I got this uh, excerpt from Carol Myers, um, who is a professor of religious studies at Duke University, and this is from an NPR interview. But this is very interesting about uh, the role that camels played in the Old Testament. So she says, stories about Abraham having a lot of camels, figuring in the story of Rebecca at the well, those stories are purported to take place hundreds of years before the camel was around on the scene as domesticated animal. The storyteller who's shaping those legends is using what information he knows, which is after the camels are domesticated. And if he wants to show that Abraham is a very important wealthy figure, what better way to say that than he's got the most expensive vehicle available? It'd be like saying he has a fleet of jaguars or something like that today. We know that jaguars didn't exist 200 years ago. She means the uh, jaguar automobile. We have an idea of our history of technology, but somebody formulating the story in, say, the 7th or 6th century BCE they wouldn't have known that camels didn't come on the scene until after the time when they thought Abraham and Rebecca and the others existed. So we're not going to go into too much detail about um, anachronisms and historical errors, uh, but that's, I think, just a good example of um, the type of errors that historians see when they, when they read through the Bible. We have chronological errors. I think we talked a little bit on the last episode about problems in the chronological story of the birth narratives of Jesus and even in the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels, where you have two different Gospels describing the same event, but the chronology is uh, decidedly different in each one. Um, you know, that it's not an error in any one individual book, but it is an error if you are claiming that the Bible overall is is telling the same story and telling one truth because both of them can't be correct so the, a lot of those errors though that we're talking about they aren't necessarily that important f for doctrinal issues um, if you're talking about whether or not there was a chronological error in the birth narrative or if you're talking about whether or not camels actually existed those are interesting to me and but um they haven't been the reason they haven't been uh, debated uh, in church history. The types of errors that have been debated in church histories are usually uh, when it's concerning very important teachings, doctrinal teachings. And um, that's what I think uh, we want to focus on today, Ben. I want to get into how some of these errors have led to divisions in the church. Yeah, I think that's the most fascinating part. Um, when we survey the, even just the evangelical church, what we would call the evangelical church, in our in our modern era, there's such a wide diversity, um, and so many different denominations that it really begs the question. When there's so many calls for unity in the Bible um, amongst believers, it really calls into question. So how did we get to this place where there's so many divisions and so many denominations? And that's without even taking into account the really huge divisions, like between the Eastern and Western church, Eastern Orthodox church and the Western church, um, Catholic church, and between the Catholic and Protestant church. These, these divisions happen because of different readings of scripture. And if you start to really take a look at church history um, you can trace these type of controversies back to really early on in the church. And a lot of the diversity is present really on really early on in the church as well. Yeah. In the um, in the previous episode, I mentioned that I, I read the statistic that there's over 40,000 currently over 40,000 global sects and denominations of Christianity and that, you know, that's increasing every day. So what we're trying to do here is correlate the divisions we see in the church with this doctrine of inerrancy. 
And I think that the divisions in the church are a symptom of this doctrine because everybody says, well, the Bible has to be saying the same thing. There can be no errors in it. So when you get to something that's clearly the Bible saying two different things, you have to come down on one side or the other. And usually the end result of that is a church split. So yeah, let's let's dive right into talking about some of these church splits. So in the early church, now we're talking about uh, pre-Council of Nicaea, um, this is in the in just the first centuries of Christianity, you find a wide divergence of ideas. There was a concept called docetism. Uh, docetism was eventually, through the Orthodox Church, it was denounced as a heresy, but it basically taught that Jesus did not have a real or natural body during his life at all. Um, it was just kind of a phantom. And... Um, this actually you can get from the Bible. I mean, there are, especially post-resurrection in the Gospel of John, you have Jesus walking through walls. Um, you have people not recognizing him. Uh, and they're wrestling with this issue of the divinity of Jesus. And they're saying, well, how can he, be, if he is fully God or if he is a God and or divine in some sense, like what is different about him? And some some early Christians came down with this concept um, okay, well, he didn't even have a human body. Yeah, I think that um, we'll see it in what eventually became heresy uh, as orthodoxy was developing. Um, a couple different positions really struggle with the relationship between what Christians would call the Godhead and the relationship with Jesus uh, and his nature, his divine nature and his human nature, and finding the right balance between um, those two natures was a huge controversy in the early church. I think that for people in that time period to think of a God that suffers or a God that could experience human emotion or genuine human feelings and still be fully God, some heresies developed to get out of that sort of paradox that they were caught in. Um, and then I think that we see the influence, or at least there's scriptures that can be interpreted to justify this uh, belief. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that we call these heresies only because like, these are doctrines that lost in the grand scheme of things, right? I mean, you could see a scenario where Nicaea and the Roman world embraced docetism, and then it would be considered a heresy to say that Jesus had a physical body at all. You know, I, I'm not really weighing in on which position is more plausible or makes more sense. Just to say that, ultimately speaking, like a lot of what we now consider to be heresies are basically like were decided by um, a council. I mean, I uh, is do you think that's overstating it? No, I think that. So I always like to put myself back in to try to imagine being back in that time. So there wasn't an established um, scriptural canon or an established orthodoxy. That was something that was developing over time. And I think that there's a way to look back on it once history has already decided who the winners are and say, you know, this was heresy and this was heresy and this was obviously the orthodox position. Um, and I always try to sort of qualify those statements because I think that, yeah, there was an openness and it wasn't a totally decided thing. They were trying to deal with um, issues that were coming up and resolve problems as they were coming up in history and resolved it in a certain way that eventually became orthodoxy. And people that were considered believers and believed different things were all of a sudden considered not believers and were considered heretics. So there was a process of openness and then closure. And I don't think it's overstating it to put it that way. I think that it could have gone a, a million different ways. With docetism, with, with some of these early heresies, what's really fascinating is they're early enough that the Bible itself seems like it's addressing that community. Yeah. Um, like, I, like, I find the Gospel of John to be interesting on this because, again, you have Jesus walking through walls, but then you also have Thomas testing to see if Jesus actually has the wounds, literally sticking his hands in the wounds of, of Jesus. Um, it's not so much that these early heresies are necessarily drawing from like the established canon because there isn't an established canon necessarily, but I think that 
the beliefs are influencing the canon as it's being established. Like, so there are, there, there's an influence of some of these ideas on some of the writings that are in the Bible. Yeah. But in, um, in first John, this is really interesting to me. This is first John chapter four and verses one through five. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So it's almost to me like a direct like rebuke of docetism there. So it sounds like there may have been a community of docetists that this author is saying, no, um, you know, that community is wrong. To, f- to further this along, Second John now. Yeah. Um, Second John 1, 7, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So it's, again, it sounds to me like this emphasis of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh is um, showing like an early dispute uh, in the church, and I think a fascinating one. But let's not, let's not stick to docetism too much. We have more to get to. I wanted to talk a little bit about adoptionism. This is another early church heresy that basically said Jesus was a human being that was adopted by God and developed a divine nature. There's two different versions of it, as I understand. One is that he was adopted by God at his conception. Another version is that he was adopted when he was baptized by John the Baptist. This, of course, would be totally heretical to the Orthodox Church, who says that Jesus is pre-existing, he is eternal, and has always existed alongside God the Father. So in in Luke 3.22, it says, And the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. But in you I am well pleased may be an attempt to correct what the original reading said, Today I have begotten you. This comes from uh, Bart Ehrman's discussion of Luke 3.22 in his book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, The Effect of Early Christological Controversies on the Text of the New Testament. Um And Bart Ehrman goes on to say, essentially, there were adoptionalists who believed that Jesus became the Son of God and Christ at his baptism when God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. But there were Christians who disagreed with the adoptionalists, um, believing instead that Jesus was God's Son before his baptism. The Christian scribes who believed that Jesus was God's Son prior to his baptism changed the text to read, in you I am well pleased, instead of today I have begotten you since the latter reading implied that Jesus became God's son when he was baptized. Uh, Yeah, I mean... That's fascinating. Yeah, I always thought begotten was sort of an interesting concept that uh, sort of, like, remained unexplored. Like, uh, like what exactly does that mean, begotten? Um, So I I think that's pretty fascinating, too. Um, I know that the Ebionites, I believe, were... uh, practicing um adoptionalism yeah ebionites another very early um christian group and basically held to the unitarian view of god that he was one without three manifestations um and adoptionalist view of jesus um that he was adopted not born in the son of god that's in the first century so i mean obviously this is like a super early belief and and to our overall point of inerrancy here is that there are clearly two readings of this verse in Luke. And Bart Ehrman is saying that the original and the correct one is says, today I have begotten you, that aligns with what scholars say is the way you should um, solve these difficulties is usually the more difficult reading is, is, the mo- is the original one because it's usually corrected in later texts. And that's exactly what you see with this verse in the manuscript tradition. You find some of the oldest versions have today I have begotten you and later versions uh, that say in thee I am well pleased to replace that. So again, let's say you're an early Christian 
and you have two different texts that one church, it says today, have begotten you, and they're, they're formulating their theology based on what they believe is the word of God. And they say, okay, well, clearly God made Jesus um, divine in some sense at his baptism. And then you have another church that has the, the what is now um, in the in our modern Bibles in the I am well pleased, and they say no, 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 Jesus' divine nature preexisted his baptism. In fact, he's eternally Jesus has always been the Son of God, um, even before his birth. And what do you know? You have a church divide that later the Orthodox Church kind of deems adoptionalists to be a, a heresy and. It really hasn't come back. I'm not, I don't know the full history of it, but I don't think there's a lot of Christians today that are adoptionists. Yeah, I don't think that, like, um, I don't think that they would call it that, although I do think the liberal church has a similar idea of Jesus sort of as a representative of a, a type of divinity by living a life that reflected a divine life. Because I know like um, that idea sort of is present in uh, Unitarian uh, Universal Church um, where it's, you know, Jesus is not part of the Godhead, but his teachings are normative for faith. And, you know, it's more of a secularized view of Jesus, I think. Um, so not divine, but a great teacher. Um so not not exactly the same as adoptionism, and probably they wouldn't necessarily um, claim that you know the Holy Spirit came down at a certain point to make him God's son. Um, but I think in a sense, them saying that uh, Jesus wasn't fully God, but was uh, in a sense God by the way he lived his life. If you look to the Old Testament, um, this day I have begotten you is actually quoted from Psalms. So it, it's, it makes sense that that could very well have been the original reading of Luke 3.22. Uh, Psalm 2, uh, verses 4 through 7, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion? I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. That is clearly a messianic prophecy. Yeah. And um, so the idea that the Messiah would be a human being that is kind of adopted, um, you know, by God, it, there is there's Old Testament precedent for that also. That's pretty fascinating, too. So these are the, um, there's a lot more of these or the early church heresies. We'll probably in the future do a lot more on that. It's fascinating stuff. But to our point today, we're really trying to stay on the topic of inerrancy related to church splits. So we've just talked about a couple notable ones um, in the early church. And then now we can move on to the major split, which is still to this day, um, probably the biggest split uh, in Christianity, which is the Protestant Reformation. Would you agree that that's the, that would be the biggest, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's the biggest. I think that the schism between the Eastern and uh, Catholic Church that happened before that is also a big split, but right. it doesn't really affect us as much. Um, the Protestant Reformation is a super important um event from a historical perspective and the the rift obviously had major effects and does have major effects even up to this day yeah i mean we talk a lot about american christianity in our modern context and like that the implications of the protestant reformation are huge it's uh, the protestant reformation um, most christians in america are protestants of one one sort or another so the implications are huge. And what to me, what's interesting about it is that um, at its core, I think that the split really has to do over what are either either outright errors or just impossible puzzles to figure out while reading the Bible. So, I mean, they, as I understand it, my rudimentary understanding of the Catholic Church is that Catholic Church is perfectly fine using the Bible as a, uh, as an authority, but also using church tradition, um, and, and the hierarchy. Whereas 
um, people like Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation were really um, using scripture to argue against this idea um, that we could, that we can use church tradition at all. I wanted to talk a little bit about sola scriptura, and I thought Ben, maybe you could um, give a little introduction into into that concept and its role in the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation essentially started over a question of authority, and uh, that question sort of kept uh, ballooning further and further until it created the rift in the church. But um, Martin Luther started out um, objecting to certain practices that the church were doing around um, selling the selling of uh, papal indulgences and could not find um, any type of a scriptural basis for that type of authority being able to be held in the hands of men which sort of led him on a path uh, to question anything that he couldn't find scriptural authority for. Really in a search for some sort of uh, objective standard that he could gauge what God really wanted, Luther settled on scripture. He looked at church tradition as contradicting itself throughout time because church councils had said certain things and then reversed decisions and different popes had uh, made certain claims and then other popes had made other claims. And so he wanted to rest on a firm foundation and that foundation for Luther ended up being scripture. So sola scriptura means scripture alone. That was the foundation of authority that Luther um, eventually landed on. And that was sort of the touchstone for the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Right. And along with um, sola scriptura, this idea that the Bible and only the Bible as an authority, that means you, you have to really take a close look at what the Bible teaches and what these doctrines are. And another thing that came out of that is this idea of justification by faith alone. So how are we saved? How are we made right with God according to the church? And the Bible contradicts itself very clearly on this. There's not a clear teaching. And we're going to go into this and, and why this has caused such a huge split. I think that the idea that you can harmonize this is something that everyone has tried to do, but I think very clearly in the Bible, like to any to any common sense reader, the Bible is teaching two very distinct ideas here. So to say it as simply as I can say it, the the Protestant Church um, came out on the side of we are saved by faith alone, outside of any works that we can do, whereas the Catholic Church, as I understand it, they basically say, no, works are very much um, a necessary component um, like to the mechanism by which we're saved. They're not just evidence of our salvation. They're actually um, part of what saves us, and those works being the sacraments. And that, that's how I understand it, Ben. Do you think I have that right? Um, yeah, I think that growing up, we were always taught that Catholics believed in salvation by works, which... Uh is a partial truth, but also doesn't tell the whole truth because the works that they are talking about are um, participation in the sacraments. So, so it's actually the means of grace that you receive. So Catholics would say, no, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We receive the grace by doing the works of taking the sacraments. And so uh, that's how we receive our grace. So it's all, it's, it's really like a definitional difference. Um, in some ways, uh, but certainly Luther's doctrine of faith alone um, would have been something that would have been shocking to uh, the Catholics at that time, and um, and and as we'll see, is something that is uh, confounds uh, other verses in Scripture. Right. I mean, the interestingly to me, the only occurrence of the phrase "faith alone." in the Bible comes from James 2.24, and it explicitly says that we are not saved by faith alone. Uh, James 2.24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And uh, this is kind of my point here that I believe that the author of the epistle of James is actually kind of debating with um, the apostle Paul 
on faith versus works. Like this, this very debate that rages on to this day within the church is actually found like in the pages of the Bible. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's possible to read. I mean, um, if you read Paul talking about justification by faith, which justification by faith alone is not a phrase that's in the Bible. It was a per, it was purely a phrase that Luther preferred, uh, f- not because it was a direct translation, um, but because of the emphasis that it put on. Just a, a little aside, I know it's probably um, another tangent that we don't want to go too far down, but I think that Luther is such a fascinating historical figure because so much of his life experience gets put into his um, theological beliefs, and he really came to a Pauline theology through reading Augustine. So it's important to understand Augustine's theology leading Luther to a really Paul-centered theology and a Paul-centered reading of the Bible. Um, And that allows him to have the sort of hermeneutical key that unlocks salvation by faith alone. So even though that's not a phrase that is, is actually... Um, literally there. It's sort of Luther's um, conception of the whole process of salvation. Um, But I don't think that it's possible to read James and Paul next to each other and not read them as writing against each other, because it's just everything about it is structured exactly the same, and they're literally saying the opposite thing. Yeah, they're talking in the same context about the same thing using the same words there's no other way you can really interpret it in my mind other than saying that they're in conflict with one another and i think that's evidenced again in the in the fact that the church is divided over this like i've i've said it before but you have you know very intelligent scholars catholic scholars and protestant scholars that have come to completely differing opinions about this and that's because the bible's not be, not teaching a clear message yeah. And um, that's the one like factor or variable that they're not considering. Like, what if the Bible is teaching two different things? And which is what I think is is happening here. Yeah, I think that um, even in Protestantism, they wouldn't necessarily say um, at least there's a, a tension always between faith and works um, and falling more on the side of um, one or the other, the more reformed tradition. Um, obviously being more um, on the side of justification by faith alone. Although, um, when you get into the really hardcore Calvinist position, um, I think that their like, morality is structured almost in a way where they, they would say it's faith alone, but it's certainly there's a lot of works involved. And um, on the other side, you have like the holy, holiness movement or maybe the Mennonites or the Anabaptists or um, even the Methodist church that are more focused on disciplined life and, um, and living a life of, uh, of good work. So you can see even amongst just Protestantism, how the, the different ideas of these two passages have, have created different denominations. Right. That's our ultimate point here is that if you're trying to say that the Bible is speaking one theology, like one philosophy, however you want to say, one doctrine on these issues, you're going to have a huge problem because it's not. It's teaching, like you have different authors to different audiences teaching with this with this instance two completely different positions. And it has led to a huge church split that has never been reconciled to this day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I should say, I think Luther is right about interpreting Paul the way that he does. I think that is what Paul is saying. I uh, agree. <laughs> I, I, but I do think it's a problem uh, when you compare it to what James is saying. Uh, but I do think that Luther, I don't think that Luther is wrong in saying that Paul is teaching faith alone. I think that is what Paul is teaching. I agree. But what do you think James is teaching? I think James is teaching uh, justification by works and not by faith alone. Because right. that's what James <laughs> says. I mean, I, I like, it's... I, I, it'll be a theme that we continually have to come back to, but 
I think that the most respectful way, that the most respect that you can show for the Bible is to let the authors actually speak for themselves instead of me trying to make James say what I want James to say. So when James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, well, then I'm going to say, I think James is saying, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I don't think it would be fair to him or the author um, to make him try to say something other than what he's saying. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, that's exactly right. And I think the problem that uh, too many Christians have is that they uh, force biblical authors into saying things that they're not saying because their ultimate uh, because they've already adopted a certain theology that they just have to stick to at all costs. And um, and again, this is what has fractured the church. And I can't stress that point enough. Like the, the, uh, the church being split cer- certainly would not be an ideal situation. Jesus talks about knowing his people by their unity. Um, and um, the church, the Christian church is divided o- over these exact issues. So, um, I would say inerrancy is really the cause ultimately um, of these splits. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've sort of touched on the point that Christianity has been diverse early on. I think that the diversity goes all the way back to when the scriptures were being put together. Um, I think that the Bible writers, there's diversity amongst the Bible writers' perspectives. So the reason that there was diversity then is the same reason there's diversity now. It's because people are holding on to these different ideas. Because there's a closure that's happened, certain ideas have become heretical. And the ideas that were before that closing point have to harmonize with each other. So we say, you know, this is when we establish our orthodox doctrine. And we did that based on these scriptures that we have. Now, at this point, we're, we've agreed that these scriptures all agree with each other and line up to this doctrine. We wouldn't try to say, well, Arminius, Arminian and John Calvin are both saying the same thing, even though they, they both are saying something different, because they're both Christians and they have to harmonize. Like, exactly. we wouldn't try to play those games, because they're clearly not saying the same thing. So... Yeah, we read that old text because there's a closure and we say they have to be saying the same thing. We're making them say the same thing, even though that's a standard that we wouldn't do on any type of another author. Like it just doesn't make sense. It's just imposing something on an author that doesn't let them speak for themselves. Yeah, I think ultimately that's the best point we could make. We've talked a lot about James and Paul, but we haven't really quoted anything from Paul. So here's here's a verse from... Galatians, Galatians 2, 16, the first half of the verse, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And then, you know, as opposed to what we've already read from James 2, 24, see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So, um, yeah, I just think it's a, uh, it's kind of an unanswerable thing. And I, and I really can't blame Catholics from coming down on the side that they come down on, and I can't blame Protestants for coming down on the side they've come down on, other than to say, I wish they would both recognize that they're both correct. (laughs) And the Bible is saying both things. It's almost like, I feel like Protestants almost have the attitude like, yeah, but we're not really going to take James that serious because Paul is so much more of an important... This is obviously me just putting this on them, but I do kind of get that feeling sometimes that people you know, put Paul on such a platform that, you know, he's almost on the level of Jesus where James people are, would be very quick to just kind of blow off. Yeah, I think that's true. I I mean, I think James is one of the, the last books to make it into the canon. It's had a sort of rough go of it. Uh, Luther reluctantly kept it in his Bible. I think he wanted to have it as, a, as a, an appendix at one point in time, or maybe it was even as an appendix in the first um, edition of the Bible that he did. Um, Luther obviously didn't like James because, um, again, the people throughout history are not dumb. They've, they've realized this stuff too. So I think you're right. I, I think just people in general, even without knowing it, have a Pauline um, version of theology just because that's 
at least there's a school of theology that says like we come from, we get our theology from Paul primarily. So these verses really do create a problem because you have works like in both verses. So Paul's talking about obedience to the law and James is talking about works. So if James is not talking about obedience to the law, what's he talking about when he's talking about works? That would be my first question. I would say that he probably is talking about obedience to the law when he's talking about works, right? Yeah. And then you have the word justified. So do they mean the same thing by justified? If, if they do mean the same thing by justified, then you've created another problem for yourself. Because then they're really saying the different, something different. If they mean something different by justified, then I think that creates a problem for you with in- inerrancy as well. Because now, well, why do two different writers have different concepts of justified? And what do they mean by justified? And now do we have to flush out every time someone uses the term justified, what are they really talking about? So you see what I'm saying? Like, the most clear reading is that they're saying something different. It's structured in the way that they're saying the exact opposite thing. Yeah, I think um, it would be really interesting to kind of um, do a historical analysis about um, was James writing to like a Pauline community or writing against a Pauline community? Um, That is my speculation. um, And I know there are scholars out there that say that. But um, that would be a really interesting thing to research further. But I, I don't think there's any denying that on the surface, this is a contradiction. And I think whether or not it's a contradiction in a technical sense, in practical purposes, it is a contradiction because clearly the church is divided over this. And that's really what matters. It's a dividing yeah. issue because the Bible is not clear. We're going to talk later um, in our next episode a little bit about some of the divides within the Protestant church. And um, baptism comes to mind. And and there the problem is ambiguity. And, you know, whether or not it's teaching two distinct different doctrines doesn't really matter if it's an important detail that's completely ambiguous. The practical implication is that the church is still divided over this. So a lot of Christians will claim like, okay, there may be some little discrepancies in the Bible, but there's nothing on major doctrines. There's nothing that would have anything to do with salvation, for instance. Well, this is this is directly related to salvation, and the and the biggest split in the history of the church is over this exact topic. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. I mean, it's like, um, you know, obviously it matters what witnesses went to the empty tomb. And if there's a contradiction in what witnesses went to the empty tomb, I mean, I think that's kind of important. But that's like a historical detail. These are like the central doctrines to your church, like the doctrine of how you're saved. And all you have to do is trace basically every split in the church. And it either comes from where the Bible is teaching two different things, or there's two or different verses that can justify the positions that where a split happens. Or there's a verse that, like you said, is ambiguous that people read in two different ways. And it's like they're literally reading the same verse, but reading it with either different emphasis or reading it with a different concept because it's not clear. Ben, I'd like to jump in for a minute and just talk a little bit about the other major reason for the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic split which was Sola Scriptura. We talked a little bit about it before, but I think you actually have a Bible reference just to um, back up the Catholic view of tradition actually having a role in this. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, just to talk about the need to adhere to both Scripture and tradition, which um, is actually the Catholic view of um, the sacraments, it's interesting. I never really thought that there was any biblical basis for this, but I found this verse um, from Second Thessalonians 2.15. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold fast truth and scriptural to the traditions that you were taught, either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. So um, standing fast and truth to the scriptural traditions um, that were taught by oral statement or by letter of ours, which I think would cover um, traditions held by the church, 
um, as well as the letters that eventually became our Bible. Yeah, and what what I think is fascinating about that is that we have the two pillars, I would say, of the Protestant Reformation are sola scriptura, which basically says like uh, only scripture, not tradition, and justified by faith alone. You have you literally have verses that explicitly reject both of those in the Bible almost word for word. You have James yeah. saying, "No, we are not saved by faith alone," and then you have Paul and and was it First Thessalonians that says, uh, "Like, yeah, stay true to the letters that I'm writing, which are the uh, the epistles and the and the traditions," uh, yeah. which which uh, I'm not I'm not in any way arguing in favor of the Catholic view. I'm just saying that. Uh, because we could, we can also go through and find verses that um, that really, I think, vindicate Martin Luther in these things. But again, it's just to our point that there's a reason that the church is divided on all these issues. Um, there, like, there's not one clear answer to this, and the other side just hasn't gotten it right and hasn't figured it out. It's like, no, there's there's uh, really really smart people. Uh, on both sides of these issues that have been debating this for centuries. And the one factor that they are not willing to consider is that the Bible might have errors in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully this can sort of be like a way for people to feel a little bit more tolerant towards um, other people's beliefs and earnest beliefs because they very well could be found. I mean, I like, like I said, growing up, I always thought it was strange um, when I encountered people that believed um, either Protestants that believe different doctrines than um, what my church taught or uh, especially Catholics who seemed like very foreign to me in their uh, theological beliefs. But uh, the more you study, the more you realize that there it's not this crazy foreign thing that there's actually um, scriptural basis um, for the beliefs that these other folks have. And yeah, like you said, it's not always clear what the correct interpretation is, let alone if you have two conflicting uh, passages. False Witness. This is False Witness the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real, and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. Take it away, Ben. All right. Verse number one. And I pray the Father... In the name of Christ, that many of us, if not all, may be saved in his kingdom at that great and last day. Verse 2. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Number 3. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God, from the angel's hand. And verse number four. Nevertheless, we made our prayers to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So I don't know about you, Ben, but one of these stuck out to me like a sore thumb. Like I definitely believe it is the false witness. I think it's number one, um, because in preparation for... Um, some of these episodes that we're doing, we've been studying um, things about differing views about salvation and um, the universalist viewpoint, which basically, um, you know, has a whole school of thought within Christianity that says um, God will save, ultimately God will save everybody. And um, so I've been looking at a lot of different verses on that topic, and I certainly don't remember this verse. That says, and I pray the Father in the name of Christ, that many of us, if not all, may be saved in his kingdom at that great and last day. I just feel like um, that's something that I would have come across and I would have paid close attention to. Um, if it is real, the only place that I think it makes sense for it to be in is 
Revelation because I, I didn't spend quite as much time there. And, um, but yeah, that's, that's my take on it. Yeah, I thought that it was definitely the fake at first, too. And then I started thinking, like, maybe it could be from, like, First Peter or something like that. But I don't, I'm just not sure. I still kind of think number one is the false witness. I also thought number three is kind of strange um, because it uh, talks about the incense and the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand, which sort of, like, it's sort of like a combination of uh, Old Testament um, imagery and New Testament imagery, but that may be from somewhere in the New Testament. I'm just not remembering it either. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to say number one. I just feel like that verse, I would have uh, recognized it as well. Yeah, after you just said that about verse three, you know, I was <laughs> we read verse one and I was so persuaded that that was it. I didn't pay as much attention to the others, but you're right. Actually, number three, that's interesting. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Like, do they ever refer to the saints? That's the thing. I don't think so. And I don't remember. It's weird because the angel's hand, like, is on earth, apparently. Or. Yeah. No, that. Smoke is. So everything about it is kind of strange. I could see it being some. passage from i don't know it doesn't sound gnostic exactly but maybe from some sort of another uh scripture that uh our producer is trying to trick us with i don't know i'm still gonna go with one but i think that number three would be my second choice i mean i just went on this long thing about why i was so confident it's number one but now that i read this and listening to your point i'm gonna switch it i'm going number three and you're sticking with one I'm gonna stick with one, but I'll take uh, a moral victory if you're if you're right with three. Okay, that's fair. Okay, so I will open up the wax sealed envelope that our producer Diana has given me, and we will start at the top. And I pray the Father in the name of Christ that many of us, if not all, may be saved in His kingdom in that great and last day. That comes from Second Nephi 33.12. The Book oh, of Mormon got us. So this comes from the Book of Mormon. Well, I was right. So you were yeah. right. And I was right in my first analysis that I should have stuck yeah. with. I know. I was right, and then I tricked you into picking the wrong answer. Okay. Through my persuasive speech. Okay, so we're going to come back to this, but let's, let's finish with these. Philemon 1.22 is, is verse number 2. Uh, but meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. And the third verse that I was fooled by um, is actually from Revelation. And that kind of makes sense now that in our discussion that we, we couldn't figure out where a verse like this would have come from. Actually, it kind of makes total sense in, in the light of Revelation. I should have stuck with my initial thought. But that's Revelation 8, 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And uh, the last one comes from Nehemiah. Nehemiah 4, 9, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set watch against them day and night. So, Ben, you you scored on that one. and I, um, I won uh, false witness because I identified the false witness. Yeah, and and I think we can all agree that, you know, Technically, I won also because uh, I first said this and really persuaded you to, to go for it also. It's funny. Well, we each way, kind of everyone's a winner because I picked the right one, convinced you to pick the wrong one, but then your logic was right, but not for the right one. Right. So, okay. you know, and let's just say everyone won this time. Yeah, we're all winners here on uh, the Skeptics Bible Project. Absolutely. Uh, great job, uh, producer Diana. Yes, very good job. Very interesting verses, and um, you got me. And uh, but Ben, you're gonna have to try a little harder to get him. <laughs> well, Ben, um, why don't we move on to our new segment, the Bible After Dark? All right, sounds good. And now, the Bible. After dark. 
Welcome to Bible After Dark. This segment deals with more adult themes. The Bible is actually full of sexual situations, some of which are straight up explicit. These are things that you don't often hear about in the church pews, but we thought it would be interesting to explore them here on the show. So today we wanted to kick it off by talking about one of the most maligned women in the Bible, Jezebel. The Bible describes her as the evil wife of King Ahab of Israel and rival of the prophet Elijah. We're going to do a little comparison between the villain Jezebel and the hero Queen Esther. By the way, this perspective comes from a book called Protected Texts, The Bible's Surprising Contradictions About Sex and Desire by Jennifer Wright Neust, spelled K-N-U-S-T. She's a religion scholar at Boston University and a pastor. And I'll let Ben kick it off. Just to uh, give you a little background on the Jezebel story, um, King Ahab um, married Jezebel, who was the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians um, as his wife. Uh, King Ahab was uh, the king of Israel, but he gave up following Yahweh and served Baal, her god. So he started following the God of the Canaanites and basically led Israel down the slippery slope uh, to idolatry. Um, Elijah and the other legitimate prophets of Yahweh basically were in constant conflict with Jezebel. And um, Yahweh actually prophesied that uh, Jezebel would eventually be overthrown, um, tossed over the palace walls, and her flesh be eaten by dogs. Huh. Um, That's nice. Yeah. Um, we probably should have had a violence warning um, that there could be violence in this, uh, in this adult situation as well. Um, eventually, uh, the prophecy does come true. Um, when uh, Jezebel hears that the royal family has been massacred by Yahweh's uh, choice prince, Jehu, she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window in Second Kings 9.30 and taunting the new claimant of the throne. However, the palace eunuchs had changed sides and pushed her out of this very window where she was trampled to death by horses, and then left for the dogs. Uh, by the time the dogs were done with her, only her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands remained. Uh, so, wow. really nice story to uh, read before you go to bed. Um, in contrast, um, in the biblical book of Esther, a young Judean named Esther was living with her adopted father, Mordecai, and basically uh, uses her position to rescue uh, her fellow Jews um, from a member of the court, Haman the Agite, who was an assistant to the Persian king, Ahasuerus, and he's looking for a new wife, um, and so he brings all the most pleasing virgins before the king. And uh, she basically like wines and dines and romances him. At that same time, or uh, a little bit earlier in the story, uh, her uh, adopted father Mordecai refuses to bow down and worship the king's assistant Haman, who uh, decides that he will petition the king to destroy all the Jews in the land. Um, that's in Esther 3. So Mordecai and Esther conspire to um, wine and dine the king. She eventually asks him to save the Jews after winning his favor uh, by essentially like seducing him. She discloses her Jewish identity, exposes Haman's scheme, and the king sides with her and hangs Haman on the gallows. Um, and allows the Jews to execute all who sought to, to destroy them. The Festival of Purim is actually a celebration of these events, and it uh, continues to be celebrated to this day. So, you know, when you view the stories on the surface, uh, the contrast between Jezebel and uh, Esther couldn't be more um, stark. Jezebel is considered like the lowest of the low. Actually, in Hebrew, um, her name means dung and uh, was translated that way uh, obscenely so they could degrade her royal status. Um, Esther is a heroine who protects her people, preserving her right to worship Yahweh. Um, despite being in a foreign land, she advances the cause of the Jews 
who live outside of Israel and assists her adoptive father in attaining the rank of chief assistant to the Persian king, where he can uh, seek the good of his people, um, becomes famous um, and widely revered, and especially among the Jews abroad. On the other hand, you have Jezebel, um, the daughter of the king of Sidon, um, arrogantly seeks to promote the worship of a foreign god within the Holy Land of Israel, infamous. Um, her name is a curse. You know, later uh, Jewish and Christian authors uh, applied her name to other detested women, like in Revelation 2.20. Her name in her own tongue actually is a reference to the god Baal. Um, and she um, would have been a high priestess of uh, her ancestral god Baal um, as the daughter of a Phoenician king. Um, so she served as a representative of her faith from a young age. Um, so again, uh, to the way that the authors portray them in the story is in complete contrast. But if you really examine it closely, um, there's actually some similarities. And I think that this is the, really the interesting part, because I think it shows that the morality that we're judging Jezebel and Esther by is completely based on the perspective that we're reading it from. So uh, both Jezebel and Esther arranged for the death of their enemies. They both employed their feminine wiles to advance their goals. One was Jewish and the other was Phoenician. Um, one was royal and one was the orphan da daughter of resonant aliens. But they both obeyed their father. They both remained faithful to their ancestral god when they were placed in the court of a foreign king. Neither one of them had any type of agency as far as um, asking to be married off. They both were married without their will. They both brought their culture to uh, their new country. They both brought their gods to their new country. They uh, refused to abandon their devotion to their culture and their gods. And even though uh, there were objections from the prophet Elijah, Jezebel worked to promote uh, Baal worship in Israel, um, just like Esther promoted the good fortune of her people who were resident aliens in Persia um, over the objections of uh, her foil, Haman the Agite. So in a lot of ways, the same things that Jezebel is reviled for, Esther is really honored for. Um, and I just thought this was a really fascinating um, juxtaposition that really purely has to do with the perspective that we look at the story. Yeah, I, I guess if you, it all has to do with the God that, um, that you're worshiping. And apparently if you are not worshiping Yahweh, these type of behaviors are viewed as like exceptionally evil and scornful. But if you're worshiping Yahweh, the exact same behavior is completely fine and in fact celebrated. I mean, I think it's interesting. Esther, um, who is, you know, kind of viewed as a biblical hero, she seduces the king, spends the night with the king. This is not all, all anything that would be sanctioned by believers today, uh, but it was certainly okay for Esther to do it here. And um, Jezebel, again, like you were saying, with the exact same behavior, um, is looked at as, you know, this almost demon type figure. Yeah. And, um, you know, one has a holiday that celebrates her and the other one had her face ripped apart by dogs after it was crushed by horses. Um, it's just like, I mean, we were talking about it one of the earlier shows. I don't, I don't remember if it was the last show, but you know, honoring your mother and father. If Jezebel were to rebel against her family, that would be a violation of honoring your mother and your father. It's just like interesting how these, you know, the, the argument is always that we need some sort of objective standard for morality and that the Bible gives us these objective standards um, that are true, but they're really not, it's, they're only true from a certain subjective standpoint. Like it's only like, your righteousness are filthy rags unless you're already a redeemed being. It's, I just thought it was interesting, like trying to parse out the sort of universal lessons um, if you can separate it from 
just the allegiance of uh, what God you follow. I always think it's fascinating thinking about so many people in the world, you're born into a religion and that's just sociologically, that's the religion that you're going to practice your whole life. Um, it's just very rare that people convert from one religion to another. I mean, it happens, obviously, um, but on a whole, statistically, it's just not, that's just not the way um, religions, mostly it's because you're born into a family and you're raised in the, that faith. And that's why the established uh, churches like are able to um, continue and have stronger membership and smaller churches. It's a struggle until they get to that sort of established place where they're um, generationally regenerating themselves. Um, but if you're born in a place where you are taught a certain religion, but you follow that religion uh, fervently and uh, with all your heart, um, and your only sin is only knowing that religion. It's just an interesting concept. Yeah, and it's always I, fascinating. I completely agree. And I think it's it's fascinating how these supposed ironclad moral standards that are unchanging throughout time that stem from the Bible. You you have Esther here behaving in a way that would be condemned by all modern Christians if someone had done it now. Um, yeah, but. But, you know, and then that's why I question, well, okay, you know, how can we say that these are unchanging moral standards, Um, you know, objective morality that comes from God, that comes from the Bible? I don't think um, I don't think you can really make that case in light of passages like this in the Bible. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think that. it's it's maybe it's been kind of a theme of this whole episode is that sola scriptura still leaves you with problems. Um, it doesn't get around the problem of some sort of an objective. Like it's really hard to get to the place where you have an objective standard where you're asking people to interpret texts that are saying different things. That's just looking at the text on a really like surface level. Forget about it if the doctrines themselves are. Um, contradictory or complicated Uh, so I think that um, yeah it's totally right it's uh, fascinating The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skeptics bible project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh.